0: You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host Rhonda. And today's topic Chow. Ah. Uh, It is inspired by, actually, I came up on this information by accident. I say by accident, but because really nothing we know is really an accident. So I was researching something else that I still haven't finished researching for another particular podcast. And then ran up on this information. Ciao. So this particular podcast is called uh, The Black, Dutch, and British East Indian Company and the Stewards, okay? So I was into the actual records, uh, genealogy records, and um, I'll give you all the original story of how I was in these, why I was in these records once I get to that podcast, because child, that's another one that's gonna make your wig blow back, okay? But I have to finish up the research on that particular one. So uh, I ran across this information, ideally. So let's do a little bit of technology uh let's see where am I at? Do 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 All right all right so y'all see where I'm at Okay So I'm you know doing my thing now let's be clear I'm doing my thing chilling chilling trying to find this other information And I see off on the sides. Netherlands, Dutch East Indian Company, Crew Index, 1633 to 1795. And it is um, explaining the crew that came over to the Americas. So, uh, uh, You see the name, right? Results for Stewart. Okay, so this is Peter Stewart. So that's interesting how they spell that, huh? How they spell Peter, P I T E R, or Piter. That's how we would pronounce it, but I'm assuming that's Peter. And then you have Thomas Stewart. Uh that could be John or Johannes Stewart, Jan Stewart, and Alexander Stewart. Okay. So then let me stop this because I gotta find the other record. So bear with me here. I got it pulled up, child, but I got so much pulled up. Gotta find which record it is. So then I jumps over. To the actual record of Pita or Pata, Peter Potter Pickle Pickle, Peter Pata, okay, Uh, Stewart. And so uh, this is on what I'm about to share with you all. This is on the Dutch side, okay? So that's on the Dutch side. And uh, this is in Dutch language. So if we translate, so that's Peter, Peter Stewart. You see this Jacobus, Jacobus Stewart. Okay, so the quick translation, did I translate it? Uh, yeah, I did. Okay so it's uh I'm trying to find a Jacobus cuz Chala had to put that into a translator. Okay so they translated so Peter Stewart is Peter Stewart so P I E T E R is Peter Stewart. Um so <laughs> you see it translated the Jacobus Stewart translated into James Stewart. Child, I can't make this up. Okay. I know y'all. I know. I know. Okay. So let's get back into it. What my original point of all this is. I want to go into the history of um, the Dutch East Indian company, because me, I mean, when you don't know, you don't know, maybe some of you know this, I'm familiar with the Dutch East Indian company and how when the Dutch were over here in the Americas, that they were doing business under that Dutch East Indian company, but I didn't really know too much more about it. And so this, it just blew me back to see, it blew my locks all the way back to see stewards in records with the Dutch East Indian Company. Okay. So let's go into um, little history. So this is uh, revolutionarywar.net, Dutch East Indian Company. Okay. Now this is their logo. So now, child, that just goes to show you folks thinking they doing something in these 2020s or 2022. Child, I keep subliminally confusing 2022 with 2020 because of the twenty two. So folks think they're doing something in this 21st century or this 2022 with logos and all of that, honey. They was about that life back up in the day because this is the Dutch East Indian Company logo, all right? So it said, what was the Dutch East Indian Company? What was this network that wove its way throughout history and had a hand in almost all 18th century wars? and passed seemingly unnoticed by all. Origins, the Dutch East Indian Company was a charter trading company established in 1602. It is considered to be the first ever multinational company. It was a huge organization with a foothold in almost every country employing more than 200 ships and several thousand men. The company was notorious for their power plays and harsh dealings. In 1602, the Portuguese had the largest trade in the seas, and due to political conflict, they cut off trade with the Dutch. Soon after, the Portuguese began to have trouble supplying as much product as was needed, causing prices to skyrocket. During this time, Portugal became a good target for the Spanish government to attack. Okay? So all of this child went over in Europe, and they doggone shenanigans with this fighting each other, honey. (sighs) For the purpose of business this is why i keep stating that all of this is about business for these people at the expense of the indigenous people population okay all right so let me pause of course i would get an interruption i'll be right back all right so In the 1600s, trading companies were non-existent. Trading was an individual event at the time of each voyage. The goods brought home would be liquidated on the ship's return. These trips were risky to invest in because so many things could go wrong. Piracy, shipwreck, disease, or any number of other things. When the Dutch took over, however, they formed an actual shipping company on a much larger scale than anything ever seen before. They purchased ships, signed contracts for long-term captains and commodores, and searched for merchants to do their bidding. The East Indies were more than happy to do business with them because it meant a good deal of money for their government. This Dutch East Indian Company was the beginning of something massive. Okay, so just to be clear, because um, I think I jumbled it up, this record um, wasn't of the stewards coming to America, although, um, I mean, you see what I searched on, but this is what came up. Okay, uh, but this appears when I click on the record. Uh well, first of all, you see all of the stewards that were involved with the Dutch East Indian Company. And matter of fact, this is the Dutch East East Indian Company crew index. Okay, so when we go into the actual record, where's that record? Um They were uh, somewhere, this particular record, I guess that's uh, Batavia. So it wasn't the Americas, okay, at that point, all right? So just to be clear, um, but the point of it is, child, I wasn't trying to come up on this, (laughs) that The point of this is that the stewards were involved with the Dutch East Indian Company, all right? So, uh, sorry about that. I had to go back because I didn't want to uh, appear that I'm misleading or jumbling up information, all right? So, and here's where I think, now it's either one or two things with them stewards being involved on the Dutch side, excuse me, family, that you just have stewards that also have um, bloodline connections to the Dutch, or those stewards were assigned to be involved or to go work for the Dutch East Indian Company because it's a business that... uh, the Brits wanted to get into. Okay, and that's where we're going to get into this. Soon after, the British saw what the Dutch were doing and immediately recognized the profit to be made. Queen Elizabeth sent the letter to the Dutch government asking them to get in on the deal. Another branch, the British East Indian Company, was created. Now, child, I did not know it was a British East Indian company. I always, just when I think about the East Indian company, I always think about the Dutch. Okay. All right, so after joining with the British, the fledging company decided that they didn't want any competition and set out to de- to destroy other trading groups. Child, that's, that's how they get down. Always some doggone dramatization involved. And it's always about them ends, territory, which still ultimately boils down to profit. And even as they're doing their profit, of course, it's other people's land. Okay, but since they had rapidly grown to be the largest trade on the sea, this was not hard to do. They went to various governments with the proposition of handling their trade, and threatened them against doing business with anyone else at the risk of Verran whatever that is, honey, because that's the name of the um, the Dutch company or the uh, the Dutch East Indian Company. So, because remember, this is their logo. So, child, I don't speak that language. So, let's say the VOC. So, so what they was doing, it threatened them against doing business with anyone else at the risk of the VOC, the Dutch for Dutch East Indian Company, no longer working with them. It didn't take much to get a complete monopoly over sea trade. At this point, the VOC completely controlled all supplies in and out of every continent. All right. So uh, those of you that can see this on YouTube, you see the logo on a coin. They literally minted a coin. 1735 with the, the VOC, which is really the Dutch east indian company and then on the other side they had the crest so rogue nation this much power needed protection so they began to create their own private army living most of their lives on the sea they realized they did not have to adhere to the laws on any land child these people are a hot mess you understand me they built their army in all different parts of the world so they were highly trained in many different fighting styles. Peep game. So if they're around the world colonizing and folks assimilated, had no choice after they were defeated, those indigenous cultures, they were forced to assimilate or be uh, probably taken out or enslaved. Then they start, those particular indigenous uh, nations or whatever, people started teaching them their culture as well, okay? They had only the finest warships built and had their military accompany all their trading voyages to fight off pirates and anything else that might slow them down. Now, what would be interesting if somebody know these missing pieces, were the pirates just a gang of, um, independent individuals that was about that life, about, Jacking people's ships in the sea? Or were the pirates, uh, those, uh, the Moors, who were jacking people's stuff in the seas? In the sea, rather, or seas, plural, either way. Or was it a combination of both? That part, I don't know. I guess I could look at the time frames, but because the Moore term is used so interchangeably, that's why I'm unsure. Or are they saying that the Moors were the ones uh, ruling the seas during this particular time period? So we're talking from the 1600s. So when did they say this started? Yeah, I was right, the 1600s. So even if you want to say, uh, let's give it mid-1600s because let's give them some time to really get their legs up under them. I'm talking about the Dutch East Indian Company and merging the Brits on and into the fold. But we know definitely by the 1700s, they were ruling. So are people confusing the Moors during this time period With the Dutch East Indian Company, which they were basically at this point around the world, are they confusing the Moors during this time period with ruling the seas with this Dutch East Indian Company? That would be some interesting research, okay? Because I hear people talking about how the Moors were pretty much ruling the seas and and jacking people's stuff or stopping other people from jacking other people's stuff. So I'm wondering, are are they blending that term Moors with the uh, Dutch East Indian Company? All right. Next, they built their own government. They appointed members of the company... As their own committee of advisors to make decisions for the company. Okay. As time went on, their lust for power and money grew. Under the guise of a simple trading company, their empire on the sea went virtually unnoticed as a threat. So no one ever tried to stop them. They got involved in more than one battle, helped shape governments. Had a hand in building Cambridge University. Now, that's interesting. That's really, really interesting. So, anybody that got that Cambridge, uh, went to um, Cambridge University, y'all know that? Child. And helped create more than one nation Including America, which we know that those of us that know history know that the Dutch was there before the Brits while supposedly working for the British. Child, let's go on and read that again. Child, as time went on, their lust for power and money grew under the guise of a simple trading company, their empire on the sea went virtually unnoticed as a threat. So no one ever tried to stop them. They got involved in more than one battle, helped shape governments, had a hand in building Cambridge University, and helped create more than one nation, including America, while supposedly, and I'm going to just add this in the article, honey, supposedly and allegedly, working for the Brits cuz like i said honey it blew my wig back to see them stewards on that uh passenger and ship list oh that's a different one <laughs> on the passenger and um ship list for um the dutch east indian company all right so we should know by now that the stewards are King James Stewart's bloodline okay? That is his direct bloodline. All right, so how's that for double dealing? During their trading, they employed many private tradesmen as well if any of them double crossed them or was even suspected of stealing the dutch indian the dutch east indian company was notorious for inflicting unspeakable tortures they did not quit until they had everything back they had lost then they took them out child if they don't sound like the um the mafia <sighs> Y'all want to know where all that stuff came from? Honey, these are the originals. They was truly about that life. Because the way they had this stuff set up is very much so mob style, far as I'm concerned. If any country thought about stopping business with them, supplies to that country would cease. See what I mean? That's mob style. Likewise, if anyone tried to open a private trade, the VOC would either prevent everyone from doing business with them via blackmail and threats, or they were only suspected of doing this, would act as pirates and vandalize their ships and destroy the goods. Child, I'm going to have to rename this. Child, I'm renaming this podcast. The, uh, the black gangsters of the Dutch East Indian Company. Because basically, that's what they are. Chow. As they traveled around the world getting richer and more powerful, they had private spies that were employed to collect damaging information about various countries' leaders. Yeah, child, it's mob style. The VOC, which is, remember, the Dutch East Indian Company, would then simply sit on it if they needed leverage later. They laced themselves throughout all the major wars of their time. Masquerading as an innocent trading company, passing unnoticed, by all as they spun their web of information, power, and money. Okay, so it talks about the decline, and we're going to go into this a little bit deeper, a little, little bit more as far as with the Dutch East Indian Company. The Dutch East Indian Company, or the VOC in Dutch, was in business from 1602 to some point in the early 1800s. In 1796, they began to collect debt. Mm -hmm. If this ain't all mom style, I mean, come on now. They began to collect debt and the Dutch government, who had been backing them before, could not pay it off. Woo! They finally went bankrupt in 1800. And the Dutch government collected all the excess debt they left behind. There has never been a trade empire like the Dutch East East Indian Company since. Some countries, such as South Africa, are still struggling to rid themselves of the violent, cruel legacy left behind. Okay, so this is from... um, revolutionary-war.net, this is the Dutch East Indian Company, all right, so uh, let us me go real quick, find the other article I wanted to share with you all, giving us just a little bit more insight um, into this Dutch East Indian Company, all right, found the first article, is this the first one I want, yeah, this is the first one I want, All right, so um, this article is titled Principles and Agents, Colonialists and Company Men, The Decay of the Colonial Control in the Dutch East Indies. Okay, so just to give you a little bit more insight. Child, I did not know this company was gangster like that. Ooh, chow! All right, so uh, this is from Julie Adams out of the University of Michigan. Patrimonial states and their chartered, let's see if I can blow this up for y'all, yeah. Patrimonial states and their chartered East Indian companies propel the first wave of European colonialism in Asia during the 17th and 18th centuries. The metropolitan principles of those organizations face special problems in monitoring and controlling their own colonial agents, focusing primarily on the Dutch United East Indies companies and the secondary on its English counterpart. So, child. So again, once again, it was saying that the Brit side of the um. East Indian Company was a spin-off or a subsidiary of the Dutch East Indian Company. So once again, confirming that. I argue that the network structure of each organization affected the degree to which relationships between patrimonial principles and their agents could serve as a disciplinary device. Dutch decline was imminent when alternative opportunities for private gain, available via ascending English um, English East Indian Company, allowed Dutch colonial servants to evade their own patrimonial chain and encourage its organizational breakdown. So, in other words, um, their their workers switch sides. They switch sides. And I want you all to notice the use of the word servants. Okay? Because as you're going through them genealogy records, I literally, you're literally going to see servant on a lot of those records. And it's just a, a, a name for worker. Okay, so just just giving you a tip there, because act when I get to the podcast on what led me down this journey for the original podcast, I'm still working on. That's going to become important. All right, so these these workers, i.e., servants, jumped over to the other side to evade to evade their own patrimonial chain and encourages organizational breakdown. Features of network structure determine whether colonial agents saw better alternatives to the official patrimonial hierarchy when they could act on them and whether principals could respond. So child, it was, there was a lot of um switching to different families if you want to look at it from the mafia perspective, so you and one family crew, and then another family crew offer you another deal, a better deal, I mean, it would have to be a better deal, so you go on over there, and you tell all of the secrets, I'm sure, the the routes, and um, probably the, the dollar amounts that they trading, honey, and when a contract was going to be up, and Who's subcontracting? And that's why, even in business today, because remember, the servant is really just employee. That's why in in business today, some companies, depending on your position in a company, if you have information like that, uh, you know, access to, to trade secrets, um, you know, contractual information, competitive information or that um, your competitors need, you have to sign a non-compete clause. So meaning, yeah, you can leave and go work for somebody else, but you ain't finna go work for our competitor or you're not finna take any of the company's information over to the competitor or we will sue you and so I think they are uh, usually you can't do it uh, I think for like five years go work for a competitor in those non-compete clauses okay so this was basically what that was. you just had them jumping from the Dutch side over to the English side okay but ciao. They are the original mafiosos. So, all right, so let me do this. I'll be right back again. Okay. All right, so the famous or infamous pioneer of the first wave of European colonialism never tried tired, I'm sorry, of asserting that the project of colonial domination was a difficult and precarious one, required the strongest power on water and land. In the words of Jan Peters Zoon Cohen, an early governor general of the Dutch East Indian uh, Indies. Okay, so before I get to that next step, just to let you know, Jan Peters-Cohen. So let's go back to that record. I'll pull up another record. Um, So you could see Peter Peter Stewart's here. But um, on one of these records, and watch, I'm not going to be able to find it. On one of the records, uh, Cohen was absolutely listed on this as well, okay? Of course, I can't find it now. <laughs> Sorry about that. But yeah, Cohen was listed on one of these records as well. And now that's bugging me that I can't find it. So let me pause and try to find that because that, I don't like to gloss over it. So ah, another pause. Here we go. Hold on. All right, oh, editing this is going to be a hot mess. I had to stop so many times, but it's all good. Okay, so what I wanted to show you um, when she was talking about requiring the strongest power on the water and land in the words of Jan Peter Zoon Cohen, an early governor general of the Dutch East Indies. So they have Cohen here, 1620. Okay, so... Check this next sentence, subjugating indigenous populations and overcoming metropolitan and colonial competitors were central challenges, of course, okay? Although they could be taken too far and even from the colonist perspective, okay? So the record that I wanted to show you all, this, this Steal Them Dutch Records, All right. This is still the Dutch records from the East Indian Company. And all I did was I clicked on the Jacobus Stewart name that was on Peter Stewart's record. And I got a bunch of Cohen Stewart's. Okay, So this particular Cohen Stewart, you see. Um, from like Amsterdam, I, I mean, and this was, you know, one back in the 1890s, 1923. And then you can see, uh, Jacob Stewart, which they said was James Stewart. Cause that's what they translated Jacob to be. Uh, when I hit it in the translation, they translated Jacob into James so, I'm bringing this up to show you all. Now, these people had to have been related. The stewards had to be related to the Coens, which the Coens were literally running the Dutch East Indian Company. Okay. So that's what I wanted to show you all because that Cohen name and all I did, family, so you could see this was the original record from Peter Stewart because remember, I got Peter Stewart as um, the passenger from the East Dutch Indian, the Dutch East Indian Company, okay? And all I did was click on, Jacob is Stewart, which is really James Stewart in English. And that's when I got to these Coens, also. Okay, so anywhere we turn, you have Cohen's and Stewards being tied to this Dutch Indian company. Okay? And you can go far back. I guess this is going up in time because this is in the 1800s. But these uh Stewarts and Cohens are linked together. All right. The early record again was the 1600s. All right. So, <sighs> All right, so blood is basically saying subjugating indigenous population and overcoming metropolitan and colonial competitors were central challenges, of course. Although they could be taken too far, even from the colonialist perspective. For as Cohen's metropolitan critics reminded him, there is no profit in an empty sea. Empty countries and deceased people within these not unimportant limits however colonialists, colonial net list also face dilemmas inherent in their own organizational structure it is this complex of issues that is highlighted here all right so we're just going to read a little bit of this and um, then we're going to jump on to the brit side I argue that network structures mediated principles agent relationships among early modern European colonists. The capacity of principles in Europe to control their agents in the colonies depended on specific structural relationships simultaneously political and economic that bound them together. Okay, Because, yeah, I'm still tripping and trying to figure out how stewards and Dutch keep showing up together in these records. Like I said, the only thing I can think of was that the stewards had their people go over to the Dutch to work for them, to learn the business. Okay, so maybe it's just as simple as that. But the important thing I want you all to take out of this is how far back the stewards involvement goes into the forming of these different companies that was responsible for colonization as well as slavery, okay? And we're going to get into that in another podcast, okay? And we've already talked about, when we talk about slavery, how you have to look at the different categories. You have to look at it in the categories of workers, i.e. indentured servants, meaning black indentured indentured servants, white indentured servants. So that would be white European indentured servants, black European indentured, indentured servants, and Indian indentured servants that were on a work contract for no more than seven years. That got lumped under the category of slavery. And then you also had typical what we're being taught as slavery where folks were either sold into bondage, okay, sold into bondage by someone, okay, or supposedly and allegedly stolen from the coast of Africa, all right, okay? Which, when we go to those records, you do they are not high in number at all, all right? So we're gonna do um, a podcast on that pretty soon. That's uh, one of the reasons I got on this track, but not the exact reason on how I ran up on this information. Okay, okay. So, All right, so I argue that the network structures mediated, yeah, 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 we read that disposal resources not a viable alternative to network, but a systemic shift in that opportunity structure opened the way for heightened principal agent problems and undermined group discipline, contributing to the demise of the Dutch and the rise of the English empire in the 18th century. Okay, so just pretty much um, saying why they had why um, the original VOC slash Dutch East Indian Company mm. lost their central power. Okay, this was clearly an outcome of global historic historical. Gotta go back down to global historical importance. And one that illustrates the importance of network structures in epochal social change, epochic social change. The story of early modern European colonial enterprise should interest social theorists as well as students of the past on the grounds as well. It reveals both the potential fruitfulness of principal agent models for comparative historical sociological and the need to better specify these models systematically and historically okay so she brings up a good point that really all she's saying is that mm, people of today should look at this information to truly understand uh the role of um principals and agents um, kind of look at what they did in the past and line it up to how principles and agents are being used today. Although most of the populace do not understand that agents are still being used today. Okay. All right. So I'm not going to go into this. Um, see if I want to go into this. Okay, I'll go into I guess I'll go into this first one and then I want to jump over to another article. Why the Netherlands setting the scene in the first triumphant phase, the 17th century golden age, the Netherlands established an unprecedented position of world power. And I, that's just so hard for us to think today. I always think about them as the tulip people. okay. Because remember, they were um, trading tulips on the stock market, and it wound up being a crash over that. So yeah, those tulips, for you gardeners, that you have tulips in your yard, you know, they come up in the spring. I always think about that. That's the only way I think about the Netherlands anyhow dutch development during this period illuminate the general character of the first wave of european colonial enter- enterprise the basic structure of early modern Euro- europe european colonialism was created when merchant capitalists and their home states joined together to charter large scale monopoly companies aimed at global commercial and imperial dominance. So this whole concept of companies being international and being oligarchies go back quite far, okay? They've been doing this stuff for a very, very, very long time. And is how the business structure that we see today—it's nothing new. It's just the general public do not understand how this stuff was done. Okay, because it's not being taught. We're only being taught the side of the wars. And they were fighting the wars because they didn't want to pay somebody some tax. Or they were fighting the wars for territory. And I always tell you all, it is about business with these people. Okay? And because they operate in a mafioso style, they have to document, incorporate things, charter stuff, put people up under contract. Because they double-cross each other on a regular basis. The Dutch pioneered key aspects of the chartered company form with the foundation of the United East Indies Company, okay, or, you know, the VOC, in 1602. The VOC merged individual assets into a single, permanent, ongoing enterprise and was invested with sovereign rights over foreign territory and vassal. Boom. Chartered companies were quintessentially patrimonial forms conjoining economic and sovereign political goals at the behest of the ruler's personal discretion. Okay, so if uh okay, I was hoping they was gonna give us the whose personal discretion. I went down to the footnote and it ain't giving me. I want it specifically, but I have to go to that resource. So in other words, family, if you wanna understand, because most people, the, the the populace in general, could not get into their head. they still can't get into their head how politicians work for someone else so how the president and i'm going to use the united states as an example so how the president of the united states works for someone they are he is just the president of the corporation which is the united states corporation Okay, that's how it's always been set up. So I'll read that again. Chartered companies were quintessentially patrimonial forms, conjoining economic and sovereign political goals. Conjoining economic and sovereign political goals at the behest of the ruler's Personal discretion. So the kingdom, the king and them. And when I use M, I'm using their descendants forever and ever and ever, ever, ever because that is how they set up those charters. Once launched, the VOC soon became an organizational template for other metropolitan merchants and rulers, inspiring, among others, the English East Indian Company and the many French companies. I don't know French. So whatever that is up in French, I don't know if that's the French East Indian thing, or the French Indian Company. So y'all get this right. So who did the Brits get their game from? They got their game from the Dutch. And as you can see, going over that uh, ship passenger list on the Dutch East Indian Company, you saw all them Stewart names on there. And then you saw a James Stewart. And then you look later down the line on another passenger's list, and you saw Cohen's on there, and specifically, you saw like Cohen Stewart, and Cohen was the earl, one of the early governors of the Dutch East Indian Company situation. So the Dutch gave everybody the game and once again the game is you go over to these indigenous nations you take their stuff you take their land now i'm assuming they go over there and call themselves doing business with them negotiating some deals this that and the third And then eventually they wind up controlling all of the resources. And if they got to go to war to put you down, hey, they do what they got to do. So they wind up controlling the indigenous population's resources and all of the profit from those resources goes back to those particular ruling families forever and ever and ever and ever. They set up companies to manage the resources, but make no mistake about it, who's ultimately benefiting are those ruling families. All right? That's how it's been set up since the start. But everybody got their game from the from the Dutch. Okay? And because they don't mind taking other people's stuff, they fight with each other on a regular basis, too. So it remained one of the most successful of the many hybrid colonial enterprises whose license mercantile ambitions and fields of operation spanned the globe, ranging from the spice and cloth trades of Indonesia and India to the Brazilian sugar industry and the African slave trade. We're going to get into a little later the Brazilian sugar industry and the African slave trade. I'm still working on that one. Because that's what indirectly led me to this. Thus, the Dutch case is indispensable for uh, sociologists, a key to our understanding the formation of the global colonial system in the 17th century and clarifying the casual factors that made for organizational success within that system. Okay, okay. So I'm just going to read the last of this, and then I'm going to jump to that other article we're going to get on on, um, the Brit side. We can also investigate factors that led to the failure and systematic transformation. By the end of the 18th century, the close of the Dutch ancient regime, the patrimonial structure was severely uh, strained. It soon gave way altogether. In the metropole, the European center of the global colonial system, it was replaced by differentiated profit-making enterprises twinned with a, uh, or twined, I guess that's twined, with a power-wielding state. In the colonies, the developmental story is not so neat. A cursory glance at the post-company situation in Indonesia So peep game, how these people are worldwide with their doggone colonization. They worldwide with it. The situation in Indonesia, the central pillar of the Dutch Empire, reveals new and unstable modes of colonial domination. But all, but there also ancient regime styles of accumulation and rule were displaced. And Dutch colonialism moved away from company rule and towards a more bureaucratic social inter, interventionist system. So let's see what they're talking about. Um, so I'm just going to the footnotes to get a little bit more clarity on what she's talking about on this um, this socially intra- interventionist system. So let me make sure she did say that was too. I follow con- conventional historical pra- historical practice by designating 1795 as the end of the Dutch ancient regime. In that year, France invaded... Okay, I get you. Okay, thank you. In that year, France invaded the Netherlands and set up a client state that lasted until 1815. Okay, all right. So she gives the source, provides the comprehensive English language account of this period in the Metropole, in the East Indies, the remnants of the, um, that's the uh, Dutch East Indian Company, limped along into 1806, the onset of a 10-year, mainly English. Okay. Okay, so from 1816, the Dutch state assumed sovereignty over the Dutch East Indians territory. Okay. All right, well, that's nice that she put that in there. Okay, but she did kind of make up, slap that in there. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> anyway, so clearly, ex-genius shocks played a part in the sagging performance and ultimate collapse of the partnership between the Dutch state and the Dutch uh, East Indian Company, or the VOC. Particularly, salient were the growing economic and military power of other metropolitan state companies, company duels, and the collapse of social formation, indigenous to so-called colonial target areas. Metropolitan Dutch development were also important. Here I treat these processes as external pressures and opportunities, bracketing their causes analytical in a in a kind of thought experiment. The imperial question I addressed are what endogenous developments undermine the Dutch colonial system? To what extent in particular was the troubled relationship among Colonial rule themselves a problem. Okay, so she's just going into, she's just going to get more into specific on how the uh, VOC or the Dutch East Indian Company went um, rogue, okay? Or how they went on the decline. And yeah, I don't want to do all of that. Um, I do want to, however, jump over, give you a little bit more insight into the British... East Indian Company, all right? So this particular article is, um, it's called the Corporate, um, Governance, Corporate Interest, and Colonialism, the Case of the East Indian Company. So let me blow it up. Are they giving the author on this one? Amour Farquhar. So Amur Farroquh is the author on this article. In the historical on India's colonial encounter down to October 8, 15, 1858, when following the Great Revolt, the British Crown directly took over the administration of the Indian Empire. Okay, so they're giving you the date. So now remember... The British was the one was like specifically Queen Victoria has sent the letter. Um, you know, unless they lying about what technology they had back up in the day. Shoot. We don't know if she called old boy, sent an email. <laughs> Did a zoom or a Skype. I'm just saying they lie about everything else, child. We don't know. But anyhow, she reached out to uh the Dutch leader, was like, oh, whoa, what, what up with that? What up with that East Indian trading company? We want to get in on that. How can we partner with y'all on that? So the Dutch allowed them to spin off. The British East Indian Company, okay, and then we see on records that we had some stewards, you know, uh, because King James is a steward, James Stewart. We see some stewards on the crew list for uh, the each Dutch Indian or the Dutch East Indian Company, okay. So the British ultimately had their own branch. They were doing their thing. But in general, the East Indian Company was the largest and powerful multinational trading company around the world. They ruled the seas, this, that, and the other. They bullied people to do business with them by any means necessary, And then it started becoming the case that people that was working for the original VOC or the Dutch East Indian Company started going to work for the Brit side, okay? So now you got in 1858, it was a great revolt the British Crown directly took over the administration of the Indian Empire, the process whereby the East Indian Company metamorphosed into a state have not received adequate attention. In other words, Company Rule and British Rule have in an undifferentiated way, been regarded as a synonymous expression. However, the reinvention of a giant commercial corporation as an instrument of colonial governance had its own historical specificity, both in relations to the inner mechanism of the company, as well as in the manner in which it presented itself to those who were subject to its control. This paper attempts to look at the one aspect of this reinvention, namely the improvisation that the East Indian Company had to resort to in order to project itself as a state, so as to legitimize its governance. Child, I'm all getting tongue-tied. Drink going through loads of water, mm, mm, mm. but child, come on, tell us how. Um, tell us how this, this bully and all this bullying they done done they did went around the world taking indigenous people's land and resources and controlling it and then. The one left standing, you know, the little, um, the little businesses left standing that was doing trade pretty much bullied them into doing business with them or else. And then even down to the governments around the world or the leaders or the sovereign nations bullying them leaders into doing business with the East Indian Company. So now they want to go from being an East Indian company or, yeah, company, to legitimizing its governance. Okay, let's see. Right, now that's what the Brit's trying to do. Given its intrinsic foreignness, the company as state could not have sought legitimacy merely by referencing to the Metropolitan Constitutional Framework to which it owed its existence as a commercial and political entity. Mm-hmm. Foreignness is a dilemma that confronts every colonial state, but is even more of an inconvenience when a business corporation assumes the role of a state. Child. As is well known, the East Indian Company derived its privileges from a crown charter that had to be renewed from time to time. The charter essentially defined the company's status in relation to crown and parliament in the metropolis. Or or, we say today metropolitan, but okay, metropolis. Metropolis. At the same time, the company, after 1757, had to establish its position as lawful authority in relations to its subjects in the Indian subcontinent. This required it to adapt itself to and manipulate pre-colonial arrangements whereby governance was legitimized. Child, this is giving the tea now, honey. The pre-1858 colonial state was hegemonic, or y'all know what I'm trying to say, to the extent that it was successful in incorporating traditional ideological and cultural devices to suit its purposes. Though, of course, its power ultimately rested on the brute and superior force. In focusing on company on the company's political and military activities from the eighteenth century onward, we frequently tend to lose sight of the fact that the East Indian Company was after all a private business concern mm-hmm this determined its structure and objectives mm-hmm. The company existed primarily to earn profit for its shareholders. Mm-hmm. The shareholders earned dividends right to the end of the company's rule and even beyond. It may be mentioned that the East Indian Company was finally dissolved in 1874 with no loss to the shareholders. The company's continuing profitability was reflected in its share prices between 1833 and 1858. So y'all see how long back they've been trading shares, and it was before the 1800s because remember, When they were forming these particular organizations, they were getting shareholders back then. So you had the initial investors. So if you want to call them the people that get um, the, the venture capitalists, okay? Then they do the initial public offering or the IPOs. That's when it goes public to offer the other folks those shares so all i'm saying is none of this stuff that you see today this crap ain't new they've been been doing that so throughout this period shares were quoted at a price ranging from 200 i think that's pound 200 pound to 300 pound that's a lot especially for um uh, 1833 now and 1858, that's a lot. Well above the nominal price of 100. Okay, so they they earned double, a minimum of double they change back of their initial investment if they got in at the 100 pound mark. Some, I'm sure, got in before that. Um, you know, if you part of the club, you can get in a little bit before that. Before that IPO, before that initial public offering. If you have the money to get in earlier, you can get a much better share price. Only catch is you have to have big money to do it. I think the lowest is like $100,000 in. Okay. This was the period after the company had lost its exclusive right to import tea from China the final commercial privilege that it had to surrender. Mm. But even this surrender represented a gain. It cost the Indian people an increase from 10 to 10.5% in the guaranteed dividend payable to the shareholders. The dividend had been guaranteed by the British state in lieu of the flow of tribute from India. I told y'all this crap is all about business. Commenting on the guaranteed dividend Marks had exurbed in 1858. It is generally known that the commercial existence of the East Indian Company was terminated in 1834. When its principal remaining source of commercial profits, the uh, monopoly of the China trade was cut off. Consequently, the holders of the East Indian stock, having derived their dividends nominally at least from the trade profits of the company, a new financial arrangement with regards to them had become necessary. The payments of the dividends till then chargeable upon the commercial revenue of the company was transferred to its political revenue. Child, baby, that's purely mixing business with political. Cause political ain't nothing but business anyway. But in the, but they they hide it, and they hide it very well. But in this particular case, they couldn't hide it. And as with most of these things, people wasn't paying attention. The proprietors of East Indian stock were to be paid out of the revenues enjoyed by the East Indian company in its governmental capacity. chow We need to bear in mind that despite all the changes that had taken place in the structure of governance at the level of the metro, metropolis, i.e., the mode by which the Indian Empire was governed from London, several features which had their origin in the company's internal organization as a business enterprise survive to the mid-19th century. Dang! Child, I told y'all, baby, Mm, mm, mm. I told y'all when they be setting up them charters to do business, they be talking about running them ends to the crown and the crown's descendants forever and ever and ever, ever, ever. Okay, so in this case, under this um, East Indian company, they had to run some ends through the mid-19th century. Thus, for instance, the shareholders, of whom over a 1,000 had the right to vote in the early 19th century, were a fairly powerful body whose resolutions were supposed to be respectably attended to by the directors and even by the legislature. The shareholders comprising the court of proprietors elected the all-powerful Court of Directors and declared their dividend. Actual governance and the execution and usually initiation of the policy was in the hands of the elected Court of Directors comprising 24 directors reduced to 18 after 1853 and all with executive functions. Finally, the Court of Directors retained the important privilege of appointing administrative personnel in India. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Y'all be peeping when they be talking about that administrator. Mm-hmm. Who are you administering for, sir or ma'am? Because to be honest, what they're describing here's no different how they have all of the other colonies set up around the world today. It still exists. It still exists family. Even the United States of America. it still exists. no make no mistake about it, right? Whereas the Board of Control supervised on behalf of Parliament, the company's political and military functions, the company's own establishment was vital for the entire decision-making process. So did y'all peep that? Whereas the Board of Control supervised on behalf of the Parliament, the company's political... And military functions, the company's own establishment was vital for the entire decision-making process. John Dickerson had noted in the mid-19th century that the sheer volume of paperwork made the company's vast clerical establishment with its access to information and matters of detail indispensable to colonial government governance when a dispatch arrives from india it is referred in the first instance to the examiner's department to which it belongs after which the chairs confer with the official in charge of that department and settles with him the tenure of a reply and transmit a draft of this reply to the indian minister and what is technically called PC, i.e. previous communications. Child, you see all of this. See, this is what they call red tape. The chairs in this preliminary state depend mainly on clerks. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Y'all know, the you, you know, y'all understand them? Clerks makes me think of uh, court clerks. Such in this dependence that even in the discussion in the court of proprietors, mm -hmm, after previous notice, it is pitiable to see chairman referring to a secretary who sits by his side and keeps on whispering and prompting and chafing on him as if he were a mere puppet. And the minister at the other end of the system is in the same predicament. In this stage of previous communication, if there is a difference of opinion on the draught, it is discussed and almost invariably settled in friendly communications between the minister and the chair. Finally, the draught is returned by the minister, either adopted or altered, and then is submitted to the committee of directors superintending the department to which it belongs with all papers bearing on the case to be considered and discussed and adopted or altered, and afterwards it is exposed to the same process in the aggregate court and then goes for the first time as an official communication to the minister after which it undergoes the same process in the opposite direction. So that's the paperwork game. That is the paperwork game. Mark, writing in 1853, the year in which the company's charter came up for renewal. Child, they giving the tea in this. The tea, baby. Perceptibly remarked that when the East Indian Company was only a commercial association, they, of course, requested a most detailed report on every item from the managers of their Indian factories, as is done by every trading concern. Chow. When the factories grew into an empire, the commercial items into shiploads of correspondence and documents, the company's clerks went on in their system, which made the court of directors and the board of control their dependents I know y'all didn't know that backside paperwork. I know y'all going crazy. (laughs) I know you going to rewind this. You going to stop this bad boy and you going to read it. Child. Which made the court of directors and the board of the control their dependents. And they succeeded in transforming the Indian government into one immense, writing machine. Within the Indian company servants, whatever high position they might hold in the bureaucracy were located in the firm's rigid managerial hierarchy of writers, factor, junior merchant, and senior merchant. The company also engaged in extensive commercial activity Till the beginning of the 19th century, so that a large number of its employees were actually involved in buying and selling and or importing, exporting commodities. For the vast majority of Indians, the East Indian Company represented the totality of their experience of colonial presence. Hmm. 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 Sounds familiar to me. I mean, I can only use the United States as an example. When you have to deal with any of these government agencies, court systems and all of that, honey, all that paperwork. Just for you to live your little life, you force to have to do government paperwork. An account for your own earnings, what you owe back to the government slash company. All sounds familiar to me. And if you're dealing with the court system, them having a clerk administration, clerk administrators, And the stamping of the paperwork and the process this and the process that. Hmm, sounds familiar to me. The company was the state. You peep that? Let me blow this back up. The company was the state. Let me go to the next page. And civil and military officials whom subjects of the Indian Empire encountered were servants of the company. Did y'all catch that? The company were the state. And civil and military officials whom subjects of the Indian Empire. So you might as well swap out subjects for citizens. Peep game of the Indian Empire encountered were servants of the company. In this content, company rule could be made acceptable on a long-term basis if the company was perceived as a as lawful ruler. Child, do this, man. Amir, Amir. Farkle, Amir, Farkle, do you realize what you've given us, beloved? Let me sip this dog on water, chow. Woo, baby. He's pretty much giving you the game of how governments became governments because all governments were originally companies. Companies started by the crown. So he's pretty much giving you the game on how governments became governments. And they went from companies to governments, but they're really still governments. They're really still companies slash corporations. So, in this content, company rule could be made acceptable on a long-term basis if the company was perceived as lawful ruler rather than a commercial enterprise. This problem was solved by making use of the traditional structure of feudal governance and loyalty that had evolved by the 18th century. The Mughal emperor occupied a central place in this structure. He was regarded as the legitimate sovereign of the bulk of the territories in the subcontinent that had constituted the Mughal Empire. Yet, rulers of regional kingdoms were completely independent by the second quarter of the 18th century. The legal fiction was that they were supposed to have been delegated authority. By the emperor, an arrangement usually formalized through a Mughal farman. There was a highly evolved ritual that made visible and announced this overlord-vassal relationship in symbolic terms. Okay, so he's talking in code. Land and sea. As the company's empire extended to what had been the core areas of the Mughal Empire, it became necessary for the company to fit itself into the existing framework and thereby legitimize its rule. The companies reluctantly reorganized chow Y'all, I didn't know, oh boy, it was going to get into this. I wasn't going to go this deep into this article, but now we finna go deep into this article. Amir, child, no you didn't. Now we finna go deep into it. So like I've been telling y'all, all all of this is about business. I've been telling y'all who started it, who still controls it. The company reluctantly recognized the de jure authority of the Maghuls and strictly adhered to the ritual of the Maghul, debar. On the other hand, it always maintained an ambiguous position on the question of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. One might recapitulate here some of the significant developments of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, which have a bearing on this question. It was during the last three decades of the 18th century that the Maghul emperor eventually ceased to have any real power. The defeat of the combined forces of Emperor Shah Alam. Uh, so he was, what, 1759 to 1806, and the Nawab of Awad by the company at Baskar in 1764 and the blinding of the emperor in 1788 by the Rohilla chieftain Ghulam Kadir, were two events that did much to shatter the pers- prestige of the Maghuls. So pretty much, strip that last emperor of any of his rule or kingdom. Because ultimately, this was all under a corporation slash company, which was really the East Indian Company. All they did was just changed it up. They changed it up on paper that it was no longer the East Indian Company. And they just stood it up as something else. And in this case, a sovereign government. They had a ruler over that sovereign government, which was called, his title was emperor. But he really didn't have any real power. They pretty much stripped him of his power. Okay. Because the company slash corporation now called government is really running things. And so the East Indian Company, it never really ceased. Okay, Now, this gentleman is just giving us the lay down from the Indian over in India perspective. But make no mistake about it. This is how the game is played. All over the world. This is what these ruling families do. This is how they hold on to their empires. Okay? All right. So from uh, 1785 onward, Shah Alim was under the protection of Sindia, um, who was entrusted with the administration. There go that administration. And every time you hear that administration word, you should automatically think who are they administering for of the Delhi region. In eighteen oh three, the East Indian Company's forces led by Lord Lake captured Delhi after defeating um, Cindy's troops. At the bat at this particular battle, Pat. Pargany, or K- Parga-G. So Percival Spear points out that Shah Alim was the nominal Caesarian of both the contending parties for the British held Bengal by the grant of the Duaney in 1765. And Sandia was his Valky, whatever that is, vakil or imperial regent. So he was working for the Brits, in other words. One of the declared objectives of Lord Wellesley, the governor general, was to siege Delhi and the Jum'an Doab and the possessions of the nominal authority of Mughal, which was the last ruling emperor. Officially, of course, he... Shah Alim sided with his region and treated the company as a re, re, uh, rebellious vassal. All right, so let me see how much more of this I want to read. Because, y'all, he did give us the tea. Now, I ain't finna sit up here and lie. He gave us the breakdown of how the East Indian Company took itself from being a company and pretty much establishing itself as a government. And he gave us the blueprint of how it's really still being done today. Okay. All right. So uh, just just real quick. So we're saying how the Arias was taken over and Shah Alim was placed under the protection and control of the company. Uh-huh. He was assured uh, an income amounting to about 12 lakhy or, or rupees, I know rupees, per year at this stage. Technically, this was a portion of the tribute promised to the emperor in return for the grant of Dewani. This tribute has been withheld for a long time. Okay, um, so I think I'm going to read this last pair. I might have to keep reading. This is pretty good, because baby, he giving the take. I did not know the English, uh, Dutch English company, how it maneuvered its way into becoming a government, which essentially set up the blueprint for how, even to this day, they do business around the world through these governments. It all starts with the company, well, with the charter, a company, shareholders. But at the end of the day, it's controlled and owned by the crowns, these different crowns. And the Dutch gave them all the original game, it's just at this time that what, um, what's the gentleman's name? Because he he laid this out that the gentleman is giving us um, dang, Amir. He's giving us the game, but at this time, as far as the setting up of transforming the company slash corporations. And to governments and how governments are still really corporations. The Brits or the English came up with this game. Child. All right. So the emperor got his little payoff. The emperor's authority was now confined to the Red Fort and to the members of the royal family. So now let me sip my little water, Chow. So I want y'all to understand. So who do you, who you think running the United States of America, which is really a corporation? The president is just the CEO, baby. We been, been, told you he don't run nothing. I personally been, been, told you that he's beholden to the crown all the way up through to the Vatican. And shout out to Brother Odell. He broke all of that down to us. Uh, the first one that brought that game to light. Was a white man, Jordan Maxwell. I was, uh, confusing him with Cooper on Thursday. But Jordan Maxwell was the one that brought that game to light. Shout out to him. He had to get up off of it. Because he know the true, true t about the uh, United States structure. He said he cannot publicly talk about it anymore. I understand that. But let's be clear. He was the one that first brought that game. Okay? So those of you that dibble and dabbing up in that paperwork. You better make sure you know what you're doing. Because if you think for one bit. You finna outsmart and, out, outsmart and outslick the folk. If you think for one bit, you finna outsmart and outslick the folk, you got another thing coming and they got that jail cell waiting for you. Hence, is why a lot of people get locked up behind that paperwork. Because you dibbling and dabbling in something that you have no clue. You saw just within this Indian uh, perspective when they were talking about the administration side of stuff. Now, that's what's back in the 1800s. Now, nah. all of the steps that people went through and they made a decision. So, in other words, they made a decision whether or not they wanted that particular process of request to go through. And they even changed the process. Before they get a response, gave a response back. So again, I say those of you that are pushing that paperwork, if you think you finna outsmart and outslick these folk? You better think again. And that's also for those that are buying paperwork from folks that are saying they are the authority, they are the guru on it. You better be careful. That you don't wind up behind some doggone jail cell. Because these people been doing this a long time. A very long time. Okay? All right. So, um, actually, administrative control over Delhi and the surrounding areas was in the hands of the British residents. The resident also exercised some indirect control over what went on inside the fort. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So those that's talking that jazz about that paperwork in the Americas and we keep telling y'all that's the stuff. And you want to argue with us if they're talking about some it's your birthright. Well, maybe it's your birthright if you were Brit. And you know some inside, your people, them, the boys, them, of somebody. Maybe that's your birthright. But ain't nobody tapped me on the shoulder and said, girl, this is the way you need to be submitting this paperwork to get this, this, that, and a third. And I'm just guessing, if that was your birthright, then you wouldn't be on the internet putting together packages, selling it, or hustling and selling packages on the side. I'm just saying. So that's for those of you that are buying paperwork and listening to these supposed and alleged gurus, you better be careful. Okay? All right. So one would like to underline that full respect was outwardly shown for the emperor's majesty right up until 1857. So they telling you when the hijack took over. Now, remember, this is in India. British officials strictly adhered to court etiquette. They had to dismount at some distance from the... D-When I am an approach on foot. Only high officials, mainly the residents, had access to the emperor. Entry to the I cos was a special privilege and was strictly by invitation. There were appropriate forms of greeting when approaching the emperor. One had to always face the emperor when withdrawing from his presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And letters had to be written in the appropriate formal style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When one of the residents, Francis Hawkins, was discourteous to the emperor, he was promptly recalled. Okay, so I'm not going to go through the rest of this, but that's just to give you an idea. Baby, he, he did an excellent job to this. So this is just to give you an idea of how the East Indian Company went from being a company and legitimized itself into government, okay? So I'm telling you, and the name of this article is, again, it's called Governance, Corporate Interest and Colonialism, The Case of the East Indian Company. And the author is Amir Farquhar, F-A-R-O-O-Q-U-I, You laid this out, Amir. Um, So not only is he giving you that information, important information of what really happened to the East Indian Company, he's literally giving you the blueprint of how governments are really masked as corporations. Okay? And who's really benefiting and whom the leaders of said government are really answering to. He's literally giving you the blueprint in this. And although this is India, we know this is around the world. So when they talk about this concept of, quote, quote, new world order, and they want to talk about a one world government, this, that, and the third, that already had happened baby it already had happened okay so let me see i think we got everything we needed out of this um yeah i think we got oh, i'm just making sure we're not missing anything oh this is the only uh, this is i want to show you a picture of um the um the governor over in Dutch, this Jan Peter Zoon Cohen. This is how blood looks. All right. Now he looks at a minimum mulatto ish to me. That's just me. Uh, so it says under, and I'm on um Brit Britannia right now under the Dutch East Indian Company. So, um, says the Dutch government granted the company a trade monopoly in the waters between Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa and the Straits of Magellan between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans with the right to conclude treaties with native princes, You see what I be saying? I told y'all they just didn't jump up off the ship and start whooping behind. It was people sitting down, drinking, talking, mess, smoking, shooting dice, (coughs) making them initial deals. So in other words, these indigenous cultures Had people let them in the front door of they crib. Right. So, uh, right to conclude treaties with native princes to build forts. So, who built them forts? Uh-huh. the Europeans built them forts around the world. Between the, let me just read that again. Between the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean with the right to conclude treaties with native princes to build forts and maintain armed forces and to carry on administrative functions through officials who were required to take an Oath of loyalty to the Dutch government. So who does administrators work for? They tie back to one of them crowns. And so when people are getting elected to office, don't they take oaths? And those oaths are always to the corporation. And the corporation is controlled by whom? I hope y'all getting the connections. Under the administration of forceful governors, general, most notably, Jan Peterson. I wonder if that's where Peterson. is. Peter Zoom Cohen and Anthony van De or Dieman, or Dieman. the company was able to defeat the British fleet and largely displace the Portuguese in the East Indies okay so I just want to show you blood how he looked um, since uh we saw that Cohen name show up as well okay. Um, So I'm not going to go through his little bio. You can certainly do that yourself, but just to uh, give you an idea. But yeah, so this is interesting because we saw Batavia on those records. Um, Okay. Um, Yeah, so it's saying he's the chief founder of the Dutch commercial empire in the East Indies as the fourth governor general of the Dutch East Indies. He established a chain, of fortified post in the Indonesia Arco Pelagio, whatever that is, displaced, displacing the Portuguese and preventing penetration by the English. And that, even with all that said, y'all, I, I don't, well, this was in 1629. Okay. Because we, like I said, y'all saw them stewards on um, the ship. Of the Dutch um in, in the Dutch East Indian Company. I mean, clearly y'all saw them stewards on there. His dream of vast maritime empire stretching from Japan to India never came to fruition, but his energetic administration established dutch rule in indonesia where it remained for four centuries okay all right so child i mean it is what it is fam so make no mistake about it this was all black folk once again make no mistake about it all black folk all right, so this was the Dutch East Indian Company. Um, I'll end at the end of this uh, podcast. I'll show some more pictures of some black Dutch folk to just once again remind you. These was all black folk and the Stewarts was right up in the mix with them. So, honey, this was literally mob style. This was really mob style. East, a Dutch East Indian Company, baby, partner up with the family. Created a family, the British East Indian Company, honey, and they went around the world mob style in the sea. Would nobody on that sea unless you was going to pay some type of tax. Baby, you hear some type of arrangement, something. It had to come through them or else get dealt with. So, yeah, they are the original mafia, the original black mafia. So I hope you all got something out this, child. I apologize if I was jumping all over the place. I just ran up on this information, like I said, accidentally. I was looking through some records. And when I saw the um, Dutch East Indian Company come up under the steward's name, I said, oh no, you got to be kidding me. But it shouldn't be a surprise. So I wish everybody well on this Monday. This is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. And if you are not subscribed to us, I encourage you to subscribe, uh, share, and like the video. Um, And I appreciate all of you all's support, family. So thank you so much, fam. Peace and love.